Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's greatest murder she wrote podcast. I'm your host, Bridget Keys. And I'm your co host, TJ West. And we are talking about season two, episode 12, Murder by Appointment Only. Tej, why don't you give us a gloss of what happens um, to get us started? And I used gloss intentionally. <laughs> All right. Very good. So uh, in this episode, Jessica goes to New York City, where she is meeting with her publisher and having lunch with her agent, as she announces. She there is gets very quickly swept up into a murder case involving one of her former students who is engaged to marry one Norman Amberson, who is quite magnificent, if you'll forgive the classic Hollywood illusion, <laughs> who is siblings with Lila Lee Amberson, and they run a cosmetics company, a, th- a very thinly veiled stand-in for Mary Kay. Mary Kay. And then, as it turns out, Elizabeth, who is, as I said, Jessica's former student, ends up murdered. And so Jessica has to figure out who it was who did it. And along the way, we get quite a steamy little story um, involving prostitution, women's cosmetics, and, of course, Grady. Although Grady's kind of an add-on at this episode. He's not the sort of, like, meaningful character. He's such a schmuck in this episode. Yeah, he doesn't do much useful in this episode. So, And for once, he's not accused of the crime, which, you know... For a Grady episode is kind of unusual, but it was, I mean, it's always fun to see Grady, but as you say, he is, as usual, a schmuck. Well, so Grady, I mean, I call him a schmuck because the whole reason that he's in this episode is that he, his friend is um, Norman's son, and he's trying to get Grady a job at this company, and nobody really has time or gives a shit, you know, so they keep mistaking what department he's applying for jobs in and stuff. And he's like totally only getting this job through his connections. Like it's very clear. Like it has nothing to do with his resume. And um, he just sees such an idiot. Like there's a moment where Norman's secretary and who? Lila Lee? Really get into it. I mean, it's an ugly fight. And he like walks in and is like, so anyway, could I have an appointment now? It's like, mm. why are you so stupid? Go away. Later, there's one point where Jessica asks him to help with the investigation, and he just asks, like, 50 million questions. It's like, Grady, you have a college degree. Just figure this shit out. Like, Jessica just figures this shit out. Like, just figure it out. So he just, he just he's always tr- sort of turning up at the wrong moment and asking right. the wrong thing. And he just, they play him to be a schmuck in this episode. Right. Even more than usual. And speaking of schmucks, we have 1980s television's ultimate schmuck in this episode. Well, I mean, to be fair, I think the correct term is yutz. So insert your favorite Yiddish insult here, but we have Herb Edelman playing the police lieutenant. And of course, he's best known as Stan on the Golden Girls. Which, I mean, this episode is an embarrassment of riches when it comes to Golden Girl alumni, like, or people who made a guest appearance on the Golden Girls. Obviously, there's Robert Culp, who plays Norman. There's also the woman who plays the madam, um, who plays the first Kirsten in the Golden Girls. Who we saw we saw in season one, and we're off to kill the wizard, right. Christine Belford. Exactly. So it's kind of fun to see these, you know, who would have been in the Golden Girls at almost exactly the same time. I mean, with Herb Edelman, yes, he was in exactly the same time. Yeah, and this is, Herb Edelman is in tons of Murder, She Wrote episodes. This is actually our second with him, but he's not yet playing, he'll play a repeated character soon, Artie Gelber, um, but he's he's not that character yet, although functionally they're all the same character. Right. Yeah. And he's fun. I I, I do love Herb Edelman. Like, he's Me just too. a very 
fun person to see on stage or sorry on screen and so it's always a pleasure to see him yeah it is and i love that we have both kirsten and stan in the same episode um and we also have lee mccloskey plays todd so norman's son grady's friend and he was famous for being in dallas at this point um Mm. he played lucy ewing's husband and then liz our murder victim uh, is ann dusenberry she is probably best known for doing um, Life with Lucy in 1986. It was a short-run mm. series with Lucille Ball for only – they made 13 episodes, but only eight aired. And I just think that's an interesting connection because um, obviously Angela Lansbury is very famous for doing MAME. Mm-hmm. And then when that MAME was finally made into a movie, she lost the opportunity to do that part to Lucille Ball. Right. He basically bought the rights to the movie and was like – I'm going to be in this role. And that movie and the stage play both starred B. Arthur, who is Is Dorothy on the Golden Girls. So we have all these like, it's like six degrees of Angela Lansbury. Mm -hmm. It is. Six degrees of the Golden Girls, really. Yeah, it is. And of course, B. Arthur thought Lucille Ball was woefully miscast, which I suspect was at least in part. So did Angela Lansbury. Right. Which I suspect is B's long lasting loyalty to her best buddy, her bosom buddy, um, Angela. Yeah. And then we have, as Norman, um, as you said, Robert Culp, who, yes, appeared on The Golden Girls. People probably know him best um, from I Spy, 1965 to 1968 with Bill Cosby. But um, he'd most recently done Greatest American Hero, which has that theme song that everybody loves that I can't sing because we'll get copyright infringement, but you can Google it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then playing his sister, Lila Lee, you know, the face Haha, another cosmetics pun of the cosmetics company was Jane Meadows, who is uh, married to Steve Allen and the sister to Audrey Meadows, who played on The Honeymooners. And Jane Meadows herself had a long, long storied career in television and film. So um, I think between the two of them as our, you know, as the like the heads of this company and the wealthy people. And there's something that works really well because they're also both really storied actors. Mm-hmm. She was even in Lady in the Lake, which we did a couple of episodes back. We did. I, I think it's an embarrassment of riches as an episode when it comes to guest stars. But I really love Jane Meadows. Like she delivers such a beautifully campy performance that it's impossible not to love because she's just exactly what you would expect a very powerful woman in charge of a cosmetics company to be like, like she is dressed all in purple. She barks orders at everyone around her. Like, but she has a very skill, a great skill at projecting charisma to the general public. And so I, I really appreciate that. She really, she really gave her all to this role. I feel like I know women like this. I feel like I unfortunately have worked for many women like this, mm-hmm. right? She's like this eccentric terror. I mean, it's like, as you say, like from the outside, it's sort of campy and funny. Um, and she looks startlingly good in purple eyeshadow, which is not an easy thing to pull off, especially all the way up to your eyebrows. She looks really good in it. But she also is like, I mean, it's really unacceptable the way that she terrorizes people. I mean, she calls a model a bimbo. She grabs Norman's secretary like she physically grabs him. I mean, she's really awful. But Jane Meadows plays it so well. And she's particularly scathing toward Elizabeth, the young woman that Norman is currently engaged to. And, I mean, it's clear the episode is setting her up as a suspect. And that's one thing I think this episode does very well. It gives us an abundance of good suspects. 
And I, I appreciate the writing in this episode for that reason. Like I was like, this is the kind of murder she wrote episode that's kind of the ideal. And this, if it's not in Cabot Cove, at least it has this kind of well constructedness that gives us lots of good suspects, a very compelling reason for the uh, for the murder itself, at least where we're led to believe. And so I, I really just enjoyed all those aspects of it. Yeah, so Lila Lee is one of the suspects because obviously she didn't want Norman to marry this woman. And later we find out that she even offered Liz $50,000 to leave Norman. But Liz said no because she actually did care for Norman and wanted to marry him. Right, so maybe we can get into Elizabeth a little bit uh, since she's the murder victim. And I think that that's one of the most provocative aspects of this episode, which as it's revealed that she was a prostitute. Like, that's one of the things that I... And the, the word prostitute is actually spoken, which, I mean, I know this is the 1980s, but I did find my my jaw kind of dropped. I was like, I looked at my partner and I was like, wait, they just said prostitute on Murder, yeah. She Wrote? Like, Remember last season they actually said abortion? Yes, I was like, whoa, like, this is big. Yeah. Because it, it comes about because Jessica's investigating Elizabeth's backstory because she knows Elizabeth, for her, who was a very talented student of hers in Cabot Cove. And she goes to her employer, who it's very quickly it's revealed. It's a secretarial placement office. Right, which alarm bells going off everywhere. And Jessica being Jessica is very quickly like, okay, so I know what's going on here. Like, I, she- Can we talk about that moment? Because um, Christine Belford's character, the madam, is like – is this a bust? Is this what the Vice yeah. Squad sends today? It's like, if you were actually running a million-dollar prostitution ring, high-class prostitution ring, would you give yourself up that easily to someone? You would never say, is this a bust? Are you from the right. Vice Squad? <laughs> She's a terrible madam. Kirsten, go back to St. Olaf. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you criticize your mother for not knowing how to invest properly. And <laughs> you can't even like hold up under the barest bit of scrutiny from a spinster from Cabot Cove. <laughs> I was I just like made notes like how is she still in business? But but yeah, so Liz had been this prostitute and she had actually told um her boss that she wanted to resign because she intended to marry Norman and wanted a clean slate, you know, when she mm-hmm. started. And I, what I love about this, Teach, you know, first of all, we, we keep talking this season about how Murder, She Wrote is really changing up who the murder victim is. And this is one of the more tragic episodes because she's kind of an innocent who gets mm-hmm. murdered. And she's someone Jessica cares deeply about. And ordinarily, we see people like that, um, like in the soap opera episode, right? They're, they they get accused of the crime. And so Jessica spends the episode trying to investigate to clear their name. Here she spends the episode trying to investigate because she wants, you know, justice for this person she cared about. But what I think is so interesting is that in that moment when Jessica realizes that Liz was a prostitute, it doesn't seem to change how much she cares about Liz or how much she wants to find out what happened and bring the murderer to justice. It's very Jessica of her. Yeah, I did notice that too. I was like, this is what I would expect of Jessica finding out that one of her former students is a prostitute. Like that. I loved it. I mean, you know, I think that it really speaks highly of Jessica's character that she really does sort of have that attitude about the world that you don't look down on people. You sort of meet them where they are. Yes, exactly. I mean, mean, for the eighties with its sex negativity, like, and you know, where sex workers were so easily, you know, uh, scapegoated for everything. It's really, it's one of those quietly radical moments that's, you know, that Murder, She Wrote excels at doing. Like, and it really yeah. sort of brings home to us, like, how this show 
in a in a really quite brilliant fashion was sub, was subversive in this kind of dominant eighties mindset. Yes, absolutely. Um, where do we go from there? <laughs> I mean, let's talk about about the murder itself okay. and 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 why, because I think that that's what makes the episode so tragic. Yeah. So I'll, I'll maybe I'll just wax poetic for a moment so I can elaborate on what happens and how Jessica figures it out. So. As part when they when Jessica and Norman go to Elizabeth's apartment and discover her b- murdered body, they notice that someone has scrawled all over a portrait that Norman has had commissioned for her with lipstick in a very with lipstick, and it's a shade of lipstick that no one can match. But it slowly Jessica it finally occurs to Jessica that the reason they can't match it is because it's not a current one; it is one that has been discontinued. And she subsequently realizes that that was the tube of lipstick that a photographer had used who then handed it off to Norman who pocketed it. And so when he went to Elizabeth's apartment in anger, having found out she was still having an affair with a former love, third rate actor, mm-hmm. former love and third rate actor in his rage, she scrawled it on the the portrait and then strangled her. Like, yeah. We're, we're to yeah. And the, the reason that he pocketed the lipstick was that Lila Lee was really angry. The photographer was using it since it's not in their current line. He shouldn't have been using it in the marketing promos. Which a brief moment, like I did think it amusing that the reason Lila Lee didn't like it is because of the market left on a white teacup. Like, oh my god, I loved that moment. Yeah. So, so you guys, the best scene in the whole episode is Jessica putting on the Lila Lee costume, like she's in like the lilac suit, you know, with the lilac ascot, and she goes to the lab, which is like the most fake looking TV lab with like Bunsen burners, <laughs> different colored liquids boiling, you know, totally artificial. But she's talking to the chemist, like trying to understand about this lipstick and like, I need it for my clients. Where is it? You know, and he tells us the Lila Lee test. So this is how they decide which colors they're going to sell. It's how a lipstick looks on the rim of a white coffee cup. I mean, I think that is the best way to pick a lipstick shade ever. And also, that was one of their Golden Girls alumni, like was the chemist, because he plays the character of Alexei Bolgorov, the Russian embassy guy from the episode Letter to Gorbachev. I knew there was one I was forgetting. Yep. Yeah. He was apparently, after he after Rose's debacle, he apparently fled and became a chemist for a cosmetics company. That's for a cosmetics company? <laughs> I'm imagining, just a brief aside, a, gold, a shared Golden Girls, like, murder share at universe, like, that there's a oh, shared universe. Oh, the fanfic would be extraordinary. <laughs> but anyway, we digress. But I think... We digress. But there is something deeply tragic about the whole Norman murder um, situation, because he clearly, as he made clear to Jessica, did love Elizabeth, and she loved him. Like, it wasn't a gold digging dynamic it wasn't just a sad old man getting with a young woman like they were lovers and they were honest with one another it's like he knew she was a prostitute a sex worker from the beginning so like it wasn't something that like shattered his love of her it was the affair that did it and i mean there's something deeply human about that storyline it's believable it's one of the few cases where not few but it's one of the cases where i find the mode of convincing because it's like yeah i can definitely see why someone would be pushed to rage out of jealousy. Maybe that's just because I'm a jealous person. And so like, not that I've contemplated murder, but. um, but. Yeah. Let's like clarify that just a little (laughs) bit, but you know, I had, I know I always reference Christy, but I had just this morning um, listened to the audiobook version of in a glass darkly, which is an Agatha Christie short story where a guy witnesses a murder of a woman in a mirror and then tries to save her from that murder. But ultimately, it actually turns out it was him all along. And so in saving her from who he thinks is the murderer, he marries her and he becomes the murderer and he murders her in a jealous rage. 
um, because he thinks she's having an affair. And so that was totally on my mind when I watched mm. this episode. And I'm, I'm just thinking about like how, as you said, there's something really striking about the first time Jessica goes to talk to Norman when she's found out that Liz was a sex worker. And he's like, yeah, I know. I knew. You know, and so we think that perhaps it was Lila Lee who murdered her. Or even the secretary. She could be threatening the company. It could have been the secretary because the secretary obviously has a thing for Norman and wants her gone and actually even tries to like, like she's the one who tips Norman off to this really expensive purchase that Liz made as a way of, you know, like kind of telling on Liz to make Norman uninterested. Right. It could have been the son because he felt like Norman got involved way too soon after his mom's death. And of course, if Norman marries Liz, it could threaten his inheritance. They don't talk about that, but that's always, you know, what we think. So there's lots of people it could have been, you know, and it seems like it can't be Norman because this one thing that would be the big secret that could have threatened their relationship, he actually already knew. So it's only the second time that Jessica goes to talk to him again that we see this really nice facade, this sort of loving facade that underneath this horrible, dark, jealous, raging thing is lurking. And I think that Robert Culp just delivers this stellar monologue explaining it and we have a spooky flashback to the murder and we Mm -hmm. just see him in a rage and it's really sinister and really scary and i think it's just a dynamic performance it is and i think that part of what makes it so dynamic is that throughout the episode cope has been so charming like he is effortlessly he is so charming charming. and you know and when he appears in the golden girls several years down the road he's similarly charming like it's it's Part of his is his looks, like he's just classically he's handsome. He's so dashing. Yep, he's handsome. He has that silver hair, like, you know, obviously as a wealthy man, like he is, as I said, in the reference to the Magnificent Ambersons, like Orson Welles movie, he is magnificent. Like there's just something yeah. really stupendous about his whole charisma. Like he exudes this charisma that I think makes him so compelling. And I think that's part of the reason Jessica likes him so much, because they clearly, you know, have a, a pretty quick rapport. And it's, but as you say, as is often the case, that's precisely what makes him so sinister when he snaps. Because it's, you know, that beauty has turned to a kind of ugliness. And I mean, the fact that he, it's implied that he strangles her with her own scarf is just like. Yeah. It's glamorous, but horrifying. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also revealing that in the flashback, the film, it cuts away from the actual death itself, which doesn't always happen. Like sometimes murder shows us the death. Mm Mm-hmm. As it happens, but I think the nature of this one is such that it doesn't want us to see it. And that's part of what makes it even more unsettling, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a little bit obvious in the sense that um, the way they find Liz's body is that Jessica has agreed to have dinner with Norman and Liz to catch up. And she's actually staying mm-hmm. over in New York longer just to do that. So she's staying with Grady and, you know, like there's like madcap shenanigans about that because – would anything be worse than staying at like some 20 something single man's apartment? Like the horror, right? Um, I had to sleep in my friend's dorm room once um, for a week because the dorms were closed and I got to use his room and it was like the most disgusting thing I've ever done in my life. But anyway, so, you know, there's just shenanigans there, right? But Jessica is like at dinner with Norman waiting for Liz to come and she doesn't come. And so Norman's like, do you mind if we actually go check on her? Mm-hmm. Um, which seems a little bit fishy, right? He doesn't try calling first, you know, and it's sort of conveniently staged so that Jessica is with him when he finds the body. And so therefore it seems like he couldn't have done it, you know? 
the apartment he ransacked after he murdered her to make it look like she was killed by an intruder. But of course, he's such a shitty... Everybody on the show is such a shitty murderer. Like, if you're going to stage it to look like a robbery, but you don't take all the expensive stuff, <laughs> like, come right. on. It's like, come on. Have you never watched an episode of Murder, She Wrote? Like, come on. Right. Well, I guess they wouldn't have had Murder, She Wrote, but didn't they ever watch Columbo? Like, come on. You guys need to do your research as murderers. <laughs> and I, But I will say that, like, I, I enjoyed Jessica also in this episode. Like, I know so often we, like, talk about everyone else but Jessica. <laughs> but I really enjoyed particularly her exchange with Elizabeth. Like, because it's, yeah. it's one of those grace notes where we get, like, the hints that Jessica has, like, former students like she is obviously wasn't educated mm-hmm. for so many years and it's you know it's quite extraordinary to see the obvious radiant joy she feels reconnecting with this person and that's part yes. of what gives the whole murder it's kind of emotional weight because it's yeah because sometimes these are people that jessica knows distantly but like as we you know both of us have taught people before like we're both we both have educated before so there is a special bond and it would be quite devastating to you know find your former student murdered murdered yeah and it's one thing if she had just heard about her death or something but like she just literally reconnected with her that night right and like and the next day she's dead you know it's really horrifying and it's something really charming about the way that they engage with each other in the um the hotel lobby like this the the obvious joy and camaraderie both feel reconnecting because you know jessica goes out of her way to talk about how you know elizabeth was one of her best students and that she is sad that she didn't pursue her writing career because she was so proud i love that she remembers that many details about somebody who must have been her student at least a decade ago if not longer right and I, I, I just—it's one of those moments that happens so often where Jessica's like, just she's so warm and human. Mm-hmm. Like I, there are so, and I know we've we've gushed about this before, but there's just so few characters like that on television, either then or since, that are just so generous perfect. and perfect. Like there's just a, a, a genuine like grace and humanness to that that I yeah. think is so valuable to see, like to model. Like I think that's a really powerful thing. The episode really, um, I think, strikes some tonal shifts between that, as you say, emotional weight of the fact that this is someone Jessica cared about who is dead, and now it's up to her to do the best she can to seek justice for this, Um, and the campy moments, like Grady pretending Mm -hmm. to have a maid so that he doesn't look poor and unemployed. Or goes to the the male shoot, suit shop to like, and is so flummoxed by like they when they're like a tuxedo in the morning, like yes. which is a cl- although that detail is going to be very confusing to listeners who haven't seen the episode so he goes recently. To, but he goes to the the shop and he's like pretending to be the guy who uh, Elizabeth bought the suit for, saying that he didn't get it, trying to get the address to where they sent it, and he is implying that he didn't get it. He needs it urgently because he has a dinner or a breakfast meeting that morning. And then the suit, the the guy, the cashier is like, "You ha- need a tuxedo in the morning, right?" Which and he, Grady, Grady, he's such a schmuck that he has no idea how to like cover that up. Which I mean, to be fair, I wouldn't either. Which I was gonna say, there's an interesting class marker there because of mm. like men's sartorial choices and what those signify, mm-hmm. and people who are from certain backgrounds don't understand that language. I don't understand that language, mm-hmm. even as a gay man, I don't understand that language. So like, I just thought that an interesting moment, just because it's something that only people in on the like what men's garments mean <laughs> would understand that like yeah but of course grady didn't know it was a tuxedo in the first place so when sure. he said it was a breakfast meeting but then once he once he finds out he's like uh i gotta go 
right. he just like runs out of the store. <laughs> He's like, it's from the, ca- the International Catering Association or something. <laughs> Head cater waiter or something. So we have, you know, so we have the Grady Camp and then we have like the Jessica masquerading as the Lila Lee lady. We also have a moment where Lila Lee herself offers Jessica the exclusive franchise for all of Cabbage Cove. <laughs> and I just, you know, so we have these like funny moments mixed with like the seriousness of the episode. But Teach, I just got to say, like, why do people always think that Jessica needs shitty work to make ends meet? Like, Lila Lee is like, oh, I heard you're a writer, so you probably can't afford pencils. Like, this woman is like a millionaire author whose face is on the cover of her books. Like, why are people always offering her work? But remember, rich people don't, truly rich people don't think like that. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about the guy last week, you know, who offered to let her ghost write. Now we, now someone is generously offering to let her sell makeup so she can pay for pencils. Right. But like I said, you know, when you're a business person or an, or a celebrity, like you don't necessarily see writers as being of the same order as you are. Yeah. Well, this is a woman who chose to give up a football team because true, she was she so rich, she didn't need the money. So I think y'all can quit offering her jobs and, now. And gave a like a check for what, $100,000 to some To the rando? secretary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit, you know, as we're edging up toward time here about the final frame like you know the, the sort of infamous murder show at final frame yeah because so often as we've talked about here before it's sunny it's funny it's mm-hmm. you know there's a smile and and there have been haunted ones like way back when you know lovers and other killers or whatever it was called but here it's it it freezes on jessica looking very pensive mm-hmm. like which we don't always get like it's that's the best word i can use to describe it it's just pensive like not devastated necessarily not upset or frightened just deeply pensive and sad like and i think that is what helps us sort of understand the sort of point of this episode um that it's just an unfortunate thing that happened and there's something really kind of devastating about that i think this episode might be the origination of the jessica O, um which is like when she goes oh and shakes her head (laughs) she does it twice in this episode and it's it's a it's a thing that lansbury does in the episodes where there isn't really that sort of happy conclusion or the murderer has been something really unfortunate rather than someone we don't really care about. Um, and I think that's really telling, as you say, as a shift in the series, because we talked in season one about how deeply important it is to the series cozy feel that it always conclude with that little epilogue where everything is okay again and we're all laughing. Uh-huh. And because it was someone Jessica cared about who died here, we don't get that. We just get the, oh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's understated, but de- all the more devastating, I think, for that. Yeah, so Norman has confessed, right, and uh, off to the side in a private room to Jessica. Meanwhile, the Lila Lee Award Ceremony is on stage happening in this bustling, you know, convention. And Lila Lee's actually like, Norman, where are you? Come up here, right, uh-huh. as the police are waiting to take him away. Yeah, I mean, there's something really, like, glaring about that juxtaposition of, you know, Lila Lee kind of continuing on with the glitz and glamour of, of the company while Norman is confessing to, a, you know, murdering his young fiancé. Like, there's, it's a really well-constructed scene that I think works particularly well just because of that, the, the sort of paradox of those two things. Yeah, but we are definitely seeing a real shift from the formula that we saw in season one now consistently mm-hmm. across episode two. So I think that gives us some sense for what made this series so enduring that just when we think, okay, we got the formula, we kind of know what to expect. They have been consistently shaking that up in the last few episodes. Yeah. 
I like that. I mean, it's both, it's, it's really one of those things that's really extraordinary. Like it's, as you say, mixing up the formula, but also the sort of tried and true murder she wrote, like skeletal formula, if you will, like the sort of undergirding part of the episode works still at the same time. So it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's formally very interesting the way that it can both play with some aspects of the formula, but keep some of the others the same. This is such a great episode. It is. I think I burped when I said that. Let me say it again. This is such a great episode. It is. I mean, I was when I finished watching it, I said to myself, this was a really good episode. Funnily enough, my partner at the beginning of the episode jokingly said that it was Norman who did it, oh, not yeah. believing at all that that was the person who did oh. it. Like we were both, with, so it was a joke, but it turned out being unintentionally. It's um, totally true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's I think maybe because I've seen the episode so many times, but I think it's obvious in the way that he's waiting with Jess at mm. dinner and then is like, let's go check. You know, that seems pretty staged, but I just really think that um, he just does such a fantastic, I mean, as he's telling the story, we have him in the flashback being a psycho, an absolute mad raging psycho cut to like the present while he's telling the story and he's crying. Like he's just such a dynamic actor, just mm-hmm. so fantastic. And I think uh, Jessica, uh, Angela Lansbury like mirrors that, right? Like she's, able to play comedy in this she's able to play the sadness and the just the the gravity of the death of this person that she's warmly affectionate for and we see all of those ranges of emotion so to my mind this is just really a fantastic episode a plus a plus so that'll probably be a good place to stop next week speaking of an embarrassment of riches of guest stars next week we get vicky lawrence and murder she wrote's take on 12 angry men Um, but for now that's gonna do it for the cabot cove gazette i'm bridget keys and i'm tj west and we'll catch you next week our theme song is reaching the sky by alexander nakarada used under creative common license you can find us on social media we are the cabot cove gazette on facebook and at cove gazette on instagram and twitter 